the Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome to this episode of Talking Race. Coming up, we'll be assessing the state of race relations in contemporary Britain and look to the future. We'll focus on cyber racism and the Euro 2020 final. And we'll reflect on how the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted racialized inequalities throughout the UK. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Les Back, a professor of sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London. Les is widely published and has written books including The Changing Face of Football, Racism, Identity and Multiculture in the English Game, along with John Solomos and Tim Crabb. He's also the co-author of the excellent book Migrant City, which was written with Shamsa Sinha. His work explores issues of race, racism and belonging, and he is a champion and pioneer in innovative and decolonizing approaches to research collection. Okay, Les, thank you very much for joining us today. As we're going to kick off with the first question, it would be around race, of course. And how would you describe the state of race in Britain today? And building on that, things like where have we come from? Where are we now? And, you know, where, where possibly might we end up? Thanks very much. It's really good to be involved in this conversation. The state of race and racism in in the UK now it's it it feels like you know some days I I I wonder to myself what year are we in you know on the one hand it feels like there are big important shifts that are happening you know recently there was all of the the excitement that a conservative government had the most ethnically diverse cabinet of all time yet at the same time it feels to me that some of the voices and forms of of racism, both popular and institutional, are the most intense and crude and violent uh, that I can remember in my lifetime. So on, on the one hand, there, there feels like to me to be sort of shifts towards new moments, if you like, or new configurations of things. Yet at the same time, there's tremendous, it seems to me, you know, a kind of amnesia and a reproduction of the past. I mean, it's interesting, just recently, I was really privileged to be invited to a an event in Nottingham, which was a celebration of 20 years of a book that I wrote with John Solomus and Tim Crabb, of a book called The Changing Face of Football. And it, it, it also marked, you know, it was interesting because we just had the Euro 2020-21s, you know, where England got into the final and lost predictably in a penalty shootout. Three of those players who took the penalties were players of young players of colour. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion about well, how much have things changed because in a way that England team seemed to signify a new version of what England might be and what might it might be iconically in our culture, uh, a version of England that that would include the multicultural diversity of its cities as well as the you know the sort of legends and icons of of Englishness um, and on the one hand thinking back 20 years ago when we interviewed so many black players who were the pioneers if you like 
of changing the face of football. It was very hard for those pioneers, black English footballers, to speak out about the institutional racism they suffered and the extraordinary, intense, violent racism that they experienced both in the popular domain and, you know, threats. I mean, I remember interviewing Cyril Regis, who was sent silver bullets with the threat that they would be shot through his knees if he put on an England shirt, you know. So in a way, the current moment seemed inspiring in that, you know, people like Marcus Rashford speaking out openly, you know, members of the England football team challenging cabinet ministers about their hypocrisy when it comes to, you know, applauding the um, the diversity of the English football team at the same time disparaging the fact that that team had taken the decision to take a knee before each game as a kind of protest and solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. England take a knee in the campaign to eradicate racism from football. The English team last week taking a knee at their first match of the European Soccer Championship to a few boos from their own supporters. The mixed reception is a clear indication that there is still work to be done. So on the one hand, it felt that there are shifts, like the fact that, you know, black professional footballers in many respects have become the political spokespeople for a generation who are yearning for something else. Yet at the same time, that melancholic a nationalistic version of Englishness is still hostage to what Stuart Hall once called the reservoir of unconscious feelings about race. Our culture is still hostage to that reservoir that's been deposited there through the legacy of empire, of, of chattel slavery, and of you know the racist nature of, of British society through the past through up, up until the 21st century and through the 21st century. So it feels like to me, you know, we're, we're in a very kind of complex um, moment, really, where there's the opportunities for some sort of breach or opening. At the same time, the legacy of the past feels like it still holds the society collectively hostage. Do you think that the pandemic has affected the perception and social conversations on race in Britain? And if so, how so? How has it affected questions of race and racism? Well, one of the things I've been blessed by is that my friend and I, Shamsha Sinha, and myself wrote a book called Migrant City and published it in 2018. The book is an attempt to do sociology differently, to involve the participants, the people that we listen to, in this case, 30 young adult migrants who live in London and experienced, over, the, over a 10-year period, experienced you know, Brexit, the so-called migrant crisis, the, the waves of xenophobia um, that have kind of reverberated through our culture in that last you know 10 years or more, the early part of the 21st century. Uh, we wanted to conduct sociology in a more sociable way, to invite them into the conversation and also to, re to offer them the possibility to be acknowledged as authors. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is, is not just to go back to that book, but in the midst of the pandemic, that book has been translated into Japanese and it's going to be published in Japan. And we thought, you know, they wanted us to write something new and we thought actually the thing to do would be to go back in this sort of spirit of sociability and do more interviews and more dialogues with the participants and the participant authors 
who were involved in in the book and so that we did exactly that and wrote a new preface for the book for the translation but one of the participants who is credited on the cover as a, as a as an an author with us Charlene Bryan I had this fantastic conversation with her and she said in I asked her about how the experience of the pandemic has changed and she said well the thing that struck her most was the the sense of living with an imminent threat of death of mortal of mortality of, of, of a confrontation with mortality uh, that the pandemic has brought to all of us and you know the terrible truth is that the inequalities around questions of race and racism that have marked the society our society before the pandemic have absolutely been mirrored in those who have borne the social costs and the costs in terms of loss of life so Charlene's point about the pandemic making us really confront our mortality as a society and also the way in which the structuring of the society gives some people greater life chances and protections from that mortality than others. I just thought that was such a deep reflection that it really made me think. And then she went on to say that there's kind of two impulses that come out of the of that confrontation that facing imminent premature death can make you phobic it can make you f fearful of strangers it can make make you want to defend hearth and home the us you know the national us it can reinforce all those nationalistic ideas and i think we've seen that in our government and we've seen that in everyday life. It can make you more fearful of strangers on the street. It can make you more fearful of someone who coughs in the street who doesn't look like you. It can have all of those things, all those phobic effects on the one hand. But what also Charlene said, which I thought was such a profound point, was it can also remind you that actually we are safer together. We're safer if we try and look after each other, if we care for each other. If we share, so in terms of how we understand the consequences of the pandemic, it can be both the generator of more fear, xenophobia and hatred. It can be the accelerator and the amplifier of racial inequalities and ethnic inequalities. At the same time, it can be a place to sort of confront the sense of, of a shared humanity that is facing this prospect of mort mort mortification and mortality and and can invite you know the possibility of developing connections and links across differences now in terms of online you were or you are one of the first uk scholars to actually publish work on race and racism on the internet and you are often credited as coining the term cyber racism now this work has never been more relevant and timely based on what's going on. So, for example, between February and April 2020, Twitter saw a 300% increase in the use of hashtags that encourage violence against China and Chinese people in the wake of COVID-19. And plus, as we've mentioned already, England's Bukayo Saka, Jadon Sancho and Marcus Rashford all faced racial abuse after missing the penalty kicks at the European Championship final in July 2021. So to what extent then has the internet affected how we racialise people and groups and 
Building on that, what impact do you think that social media is having on current perceptions around race relations? Well, it's very kind of you to remember that work which uh, was on the ways in which avowed, committed, ideological racist embraced, embraced digital culture very early on. It's kind of strange to go back to that now. And, and to be honest with you, I, I tend to not go back or to not reflect or not to publish, you know, second or third editions of books because I'm interested in the next thing. But I, I remember at the time when that was another project that was done with uh, two other colleagues, Michael Keith, who was working at Goldsmiths at the time, and John Solomus, who was my boss for many years and I was his researcher. It just seemed very telling at the time, in the early days of the internet, that it was that the alternative media spaces that the internet promised were being embraced immediately. Some people write me messages every now and again, so I read that thing, you know, Arians reading Ordorno that you wrote all those years ago. It seems very chillingly present and chillingly relevant now uh, because it was about the way in which the screen mediated the connection to these ideologies and ideas and how it could facilitate all kinds of public, you know, be on the one hand be very personal, private, but also public at the same time that it bridged that that distinction and um so i think you know it's what we're seeing now is are the different modes or modalities through which racism can be both inhabited expressed and communicated and again i think it goes back to to the wonderful passage by stuart hall he talks about you know the unconscious reservoir of feelings i think Digital culture provides an opportunity for that reservoir to be made conscious and to be expressed, actually, you know, in, in this kind of strange sort of hybrid of intimacy, uh, almost secrecy and public communication at the same time. So no surprise that it's, that it's, it's facilitated a lot of hate speech that cannot be expressed openly in public. Elation for Italy, heartbreak for Britain, that quickly turned into something more sinister. The three black players who missed a penalty shot in the final, each the target of racist abuse online. The morning after in London, not just about cleanup, but a reckoning. That hateful racism post-game is all too familiar. What do you think we can do to become a more anti-racist society amidst the current political climate and a government which does not actually recognise the existence of structural or institutional racism? Mm. What, what can we do? You know, in terms of your question about how to garner and develop more anti-racist energy ethos passion i think there's plenty of that i mean i think what we've seen in the in the the re, in recent times with you know the incredible animation of young people's imagination around questions of black lives matter i know that there are lots of people who 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 are concerned about you know the importing of a kind of political grammar from the united states and those sorts of things but what is undeniable on a global scale has been this extraordinary stirring of anti-racist conscience or rejection of of um, 
of the legacy of racism and it, and the fact of racism today and there's something about that that I feel quite hopeful about actually even in very grim times so how to connect with harness help facilitate and resource uh, that stirring that curiosity I think is one thing that to be to try and be involved in you know to try and participate in and, and I feel that that is a really important thing not to try and explain and preach to and to sermonize about and lecture to um, although you know I've been incredibly humbled by groups of young people who want to know more about the past or things that you know that I have some connection to that they feel uh, that they want to know more about you know there's um We've just passed the 40th anniversary of the New Cross fire where 13 young black people died in a house fire and a 14th died two years later. Children have been burnt. Not West Indians, black British. That is what I once said. They're burning our children. This is all that remains of the three-storey house where nearly a hundred young West Indians were celebrating at an all-night birthday party for two young friends. That night, we were there at the party, and for people outside looking in, I mean, you know, maybe they can just imagine. Just before six o'clock this morning, the singing and dancing gave way to panic as flames shot through the upper floors and screaming teenagers began to leap from the windows. The feeling was that it had been another racist attack. Racist attacks were happening on a daily basis in that area. You know, those young black people died, you know, in tragic circumstances. The crime has never been solved. We don't know about the origins of the fire still, but what we know absolutely, without any shadow of doubt, in the wider culture, and I remember this as a young person, a teenager at the time, of the same age of those young people, a white Londoner at that moment, I can tell you absolutely without a shadow of doubt in my mind that those lives didn't matter within the wider white society. They were joked about, you know, Black Day at Blackfriars um, uh, on, the, on, the, on the sun headline after the Black People's Day of Action. You know, um, terrible racist jokes circulating about the fire. You know, those lives did not matter. They were dispensable, they weren't cared for. And so, you know, it's kind of humbling to me that, that I used to go and give talks um, to local schools very close to where the fire happened and was always shocked by the fact that young people in those classrooms didn't know anything about the history of civil rights and political mobilisation that happened on their doorstep. They were taught civil rights through the lens of Selma, Alabama and, and you know, that, that story of, um, of, the, of the black struggle in America and an important history there is, but they didn't have any sense of the important things that were happening on our doorstep. So I think it's an extraordinary thing that young people now are reaching out to a whole range of people across generations, to, and they're curious. And I, I think that's one thing that we can do, be in that conversation. I think within that answer, what I, what I liked was the optimism that was coming out as well, and that was quite refreshing. I'm not optimistic in a blind sense, or in a in a overarching sense, you know, I think that idea of optimism can be cruel. Really inspired by Laurent 
um, Balance's idea about, you know, how cruelty, promises can be cruel. Promises that are made in such a way that they can never be realised are cruel. Uh, so I think optimism of that kind can be cruel because it, it writes into itself the impossibility of its realisation. But I do feel hopeful, and I think hope as an idea has a different... And I, and I sort of... I'm inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. on this one because you know he had an idea of hope that isn't always must face the devastation and the destruction and the violence of of the moment in which you're trying to manifest a different sense of the world or trying to create a different sense of the world. So yeah, I I feel I do feel that there's there are there are hopeful possibilities to imagine how research is done and how knowledge is made. And it's not through the things that I do, it's through others who I who I read and admire and watch, you know. So um, the Go Home book collective with uh, Yasmin Gunaratnam and Hannah Jones and Akar and, and Gagi Bhattacharya and a cast of others is another example of, I think, of, a, of sociology with and a, a sense of, of a sort of a different way of producing knowledge and involving people. So I think they're just a tremendous number of examples of, of really inventive and um, imaginative possibilities. Now, on the one hand, it feels like, you know, we are faced with such a crisis at the moment. You know, I've spent most of my summer this year either writing letters of support for people applying for jobs because their jobs are disappearing where they're working currently, or defences against people who have been made redundant or have been disciplined, you know, and they have been disproportionately women and people of colour. You know, I could give you 12 examples, you know, 11 of them would be women and people of colour. You know, it's just so crass what's happening. So on the one hand, I feel incredibly depressed and pessimistic about what's happening to the institutionalised forms of knowledge. At the same time, I think there are possibilities for us to do our work differently, you know. But it's that paradoxical combination of possibility and and restriction that I think is, is very much part of our time. I think that kind of leads us quite nicely to our final question. And in it, I'd like to return back to where we started. And originally we said... What is the state of racial affairs in Britain today and where do you think we're heading? What does the future have in store? So I don't think I've got any clear predictions, to be honest with you. But I think that that struggle, that struggle to try and find a different way to to step beyond that past and the the kind of way in which that racist past holds the culture hostage, that struggle... I think is one of the things which which will find different ways in which those forces are configured, but those forces will continue. You know, we talked about the extraordinary articulacy of those young black footballers, English footballers, in the aftermath of, of Euro 2021. I mean, that was a voice of... Uh, a voice for justice being articulated by young people from within that location of iconic sports people that I, I, I don't think 
what could have happened 20 years ago. In fact, I know it couldn't have happened 20 years ago. And that's something not to be dismissed or brushed aside. I'd just like to say a big thank you once again to Professor Les Back for talking to us on this episode of the Talking Race podcast. For those of you interested in online hate and abuse, I fully recommend revisiting Les's 2002 article, Orion's Reading Adorno, Cyberculture and 21st Century Racism. For those wanting to know more about research ethics, innovative methods and ways to decolonise research, please check out Les's co-authored article with Shamsa Sinha entitled Making Methods Sociable, Dialogue, Ethics and Authorship in Qualitative Research. And I can't end without once again mentioning Les's co-authored book, The Changing Face of Football, which turned 20 years old this year. This book was a watershed moment for me personally, as it was one of the first academic books I'd read regarding football culture and racism right at the start of my journey in academia. Although Les notes that he tends to look forward rather than back, I'm sure many of you listening would be keen to read that second edition. Please join us next time as Vinny talks to Dr. Rita Coley about race, education and activism. <laughs>